Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Shabbat Shalom. It is uh, such a joy and an honor to be joined this Shabbat by uh, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Dr. Arya Cohen. Uh, Rabbi Cohen uh, is a professor, social justice activist, and lecturer. Uh, he is uh, a, uh, he teaches rabbinic literature and social justice at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at the American Jewish University, which is uh, the institution that ordained me. Uh, he is a research fellow at the uh, Shalom Hartman Institute in New York uh, and is the rabbi in residence for Ben the Ark, a Jewish partnership for justice in Southern California. He's a longtime professor, social justice activist, uh, and uh, lecturer with an interest in economic justice and criminal justice reform. He is the author of a really extraordinary book called Justice in the City, an argument from the sources of rabbinic Judaism. I encourage all of you to read. Um, and he's here this Shabbat um, to uh, talk with us about the parsha, about parsha Noah, uh, and uh, in particular to honor uh, this weekend of prayer and mourning that we are participating in, along with many other congregations throughout our city, uh, focused on the issue of gun violence in Richmond. Uh, over the past year, just over the past year, there have been more than 60 deaths in Richmond as a result of gun violence, including the death of a nine-year-old girl. And we know that the vast majority of the lives lost to gun violence in our city are Black lives. Uh, and we are among a coalition of congregations in our city um, under the banner of risk, Richmonders involved in strengthening our communities who are working and advocating uh, among our elected leaders uh, to adopt proven solutions uh, to gun violence uh, prevention uh, here in Richmond. And so we're uh, holding this weekend as a space uh, to, uh, to pray, to mourn the lives lost, uh, and to uh, energize ourselves for the work ahead in um, ending the scourge of gun violence in Richmond and, and, and beyond. So um, looking forward to this conversation. Rabbi Cohen, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Um, and the traffic is really easy between Los Angeles and Richmond. Yeah, better than the 405, I imagine. Oh, totally. <laughs> Very much. It's been a, you know, it's a real pleasure seeing you and it's a real pleasure being able to talk with you and talk to your congregation. That's really good. To, it's really good to be with you too. Thanks for being here and good Shabbos. Uh, so we're uh, talking about Parshat Noach this week. Um, and, you know, I'm always struck <clears throat> by the opening lines of the portion uh, that, you know, give God's motivation for wiping out the, um, the humankind with, um, with, with a flood. Um, and, and one of the reasons is that uh, the arts is uh, filled with Hamas, um, which is a, a notoriously um, unclear word uh, in terms of what it means uh, in, in Hebrew. Lots of commentators debate what, what Hamas means. Some people have translated it, some translations have it as lawlessness, uh, some translate it as violence. Um, so, you know what, I'm sorry, Arye, I, I didn't like 
uh, I didn't like this. I'm going to have to cut this part out from when we start the Parsha. Okay. Um, well, it's wonderful to have you with us. We're so grateful um, to be in conversation with you today. And we're talking, of course, about Parshat Noach this week, which is maybe a good place to start. Um, Parshat Noach, of course, the uh, story of God deciding to wipe out uh, humanity with a flood uh, and uh, singling out Noah and his family uh, to survive the flood waters and to uh, repopulate the earth. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, it's such a rich Parsha um, and, and uh, a Parsha that, that's so open in a lot of ways to interpretation and, and uh, differences in understanding. Uh, I, I'm wondering what your thinking about with Parshat Noach this, this year, and, uh, and, and in particular, what connections you see between the Parsha and this issue of gun violence? That's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, you know, it's every year, the Parsha, the different weeks strike you differently. And what, I, what came, comes up to me for this year in, in Parshat Noach, there's a Midrash uh, that says that when God told Noach to build the ark, it took him a hundred years to build it. Um, and that's not just because it was from Ikea and he couldn't figure out where a hole A and uh, insert B was. Um, it had, it had was, the picture of the two people doing it together and he didn't have another person to do it with. Exactly, on page, on page 27, it said, do not do this alone. Um, so uh, the reason for it was that the ark itself was supposed to be up, was supposed to be as a sign. It was supposed to be a sign that warned people about what was going on and that they should make it better. And I'm thinking this year that finally the sign, you know, it's been 400 years, not 100 years, but it's been 100 years, perhaps it's been 150 years um, since the Civil War. It's been 100 years, since, uh, more or less, since Reconstruction ended. Uh, we, uh, it's more than 120 years. But uh, we haven't seen the sign. This summer, to a certain extent, we saw the sign. Um, uh, the George Floyd murder, together with the Breonna Taylor murder, people rose up and said that Black Lives Matter and that um, policing was not accomplishing what it was supposed to accomplish, that certain people were being over-policed but under-protected and other people were being under-protected or over-protected and under-policed. And so that that sign, that's what seems to be happening. You know, that 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 really resonates with the with the parsha. Noah is standing out there, building his ark, and people are coming along and saying, "Why are you building an ark?" And he said, "Well, there's going to be a flood." And they're saying, "Ah, it's not going to be a flood." Um, and people, for years, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement itself started uh, four years ago after um, after the murder uh, of Trayvon Martin, and people were saying, uh, you know. Black Lives Matter and other people say, well, you know, all lives matter or whatever. And it didn't occur to people, uh, white people, I should say, it didn't occur to white people that this is actually a real problem until it exploded this summer. And there's a confluence of crises that we're having that brought to this explosion. One, of course, is the coronavirus, the pandemic. Uh, people are, are dying daily and in, in a higher rate than people died in the Vietnam War. Um, but that together with the crisis of gun ownership, 300 million guns in private hands. And, you know, Trayvon Martin was killed by uh, uh, George Zimmerman who had his own weapon. 
and notoriously uh, states have standard ground laws, which means that they are encouraged to shoot people and kill them. And so that came to that, that and, and as, you, as you mentioned, it's not only in Richmond, but all over the country, black men are <clears throat> the highest victims of homicide. What people don't understand is that most of those homicides go unsolved. The, the clearance rate for, uh, for homicides is, 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 is amazingly low. It's less than 50%. Some places it's, less, it's around 20 to 30%, which means that the, our streets are flooded with guns. Um, our president likes to talk about Chicago being a homicide capital, and sometimes it is, even though the homicide is going down, but it's because Chicago's backyard is Indiana, where there are no gun control laws. So people go to you go to Indiana, fill up your trunk with guns, and come back and put them into the streets of Chicago. Um, and so uh, where these all these crises are coming together and finally exploding, and I hope I hope like the ark, we don't have to be completely flooded out. You know, many many thousands and tens of thousands of people are dying. Excuse me. In order to in order for us to finally say um, no more guns, we have to rethink what safety and security means. Safety and security does not necessarily mean having an armed guard or having your own uh, Smith & Wesson or Glock or AR-15, but rather means that you have a community, that you know people in the community, that you have educational opportunities, that you have a place to go if you have a mental crisis, that uh, you know, there, there are social workers who are ready to talk to people who are, uh, who are in mental distress, that there are um, loans for small businesses to open. All these, there are things, there are ways to think about safety and security, which has nothing to do with, with, with weapons. One of the problems we have in this country is that uh, on a grand scale, the largest part of our national budget um, is on the army. And on local municipal scales, the largest part of the budget in, in Los Angeles, 55% of the discretionary budget goes to policing. The fact that we think that the most important things in the world can be solved by weapons is a serious problem. It leads to the fact that we have 300 million weapons in private hands. If everything, you know, the, as people say, is have everything, if you, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, so our army is building roads and, and building schools and doing things that the State Department should do, that diplomats should do. And our police force is doing things that social workers should do. And they're not doing them well because you can't come in and calm down a domestic uh, situation of domestic abuse with a weapon. You can't come, come in and, 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 and help a person in crisis if the first thing you're gonna do is pull a weapon on them. And the pro so these interlocking issues of racism, weapons, um, and you know, this moment, brings us to a very Noah situation where Noah is standing there outside the ark saying, no, something, no, no, really, something is really, really bad and there's going to be a flood. So do something better. Um, so there's, there, there's a lot that you, that you offered there. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of threads to pull. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm struck by, you know, uh, something that you, that you pointed out, which, you know, has uh, been brought to people's attention uh, in, in the mainstream in a way that, that I can't remember, right? which is, uh, you know, the, the ways in which, you know, we, we um, you know, tend to use 
our police force uh, for you know roles that they were uh, never uh, designed to fill, right? So, um, and uh, you know, one of the ways that's manifest in in Richmond is that uh, a man, and this is not unique to Richmond, but uh, but just you know for the local connection here, that there was a man uh, a couple years ago uh, named Marcus David Peters. Uh, who uh, was uh, in the midst of a, of a mental breakdown uh, and uh, had an encounter with the police uh, and, uh, and, and the police, instead of you know, de-escalating or diffusing the situation, uh, shot and killed him. Uh, today, uh, in the, uh, during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests uh, this summer, uh, when there was a concerted movement uh, to address many area, you know, many issues related to racial injustice, but among them, uh, the continued presence of Confederate monuments in our city, uh, the uh, the the uh, state-owned land on which the Lee Monument continues to stand. It's the only one of the Confederate monuments uh, in in Richmond uh, that continues to stand because it's state-owned and it's being litigated in the courts. Uh, but activists renamed the, uh, the, the area, which used to be called you know, the Lee Monument or Lee Circle, they renamed it Marcus David Peters Circle. Um, and it's become this incredible uh, uh, community gathering space uh, and, uh, and, and art installation as you know, what began as uh, protesters uh, tagging the uh, monument during the height of the protests, uh, just uh, transforming it really into a, a work of protest art uh, from there, it's it's it been really extraordinary to see, and I, um, you know, I I, uh, I bring that up. I think you know for for a couple of reasons. One is you know to um, to talk about this kind of moment of transformation that you're uh, that you're talking about and you're alluding to, um, but to also like hit on some of the particulars of of that transformation because. Um, like you said, you know, uh, we, we oftentimes rely on, you know, our military to solve non-military problems because that's where we've put in our resources, we rely on our police to sol solve non-police problems because that's where we've put our, our resources. Um, so uh, you have come out uh, in, you know, in recent months, you know, as an advocate for uh, what has been dubbed as uh, defunding the police. Um, can can you talk a little bit about that and, and why you feel like that's a Jewish issue? I would be very happy to. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I'd be very happy to. I think that uh, um, the what is called defund, what is known as defund the police, is at heart defunding the police, but it's also um, and perhaps as important. Uh, reinvesting that money into alternatives to incarceration and into impacted communities. I think that, you know, the, the Jewish community, um, the question that, that we have to ask, and, and in the Jewish community, a lot of large parts of the white Jewish community feel very uh, safe because they know that they're in, in Los Angeles, what's called 90-second response zones, you know, that they're near in case, especially after what happened in the Tree of Life in, in Pittsburgh and what happened near us in in Poway, in the synagogue, that there was a uh, you know, shooting there. But the question is, who is being protected and who is not being protected? And uh, if you look at our synagogues, a lot of our synagogues have militias outside. Them. You know, here we have electric gates and men, you know, dressed. Sometimes women you know, dressed in in combat fatigues, wearing uh, sidearms, and 
we're teaching something when we do that. We're teaching our congregants, but and even perhaps even more importantly, we're teaching our kids that the outside is dangerous. Other people are dangerous. Inside is okay. And we're putting up a barrier and a wall between inside and outside. There's another way to do that, which is safety and solidarity. Reaching out to other communities and saying, we are all in this together. We need to, the only way we're all gonna be, where any of us will be safe is if we're all safe. Part of that has to do with, and this is, um, you know, taking that 55% of like, so the part of, part of, of the, I think one of the, the, the things that people have a problem with in saying defund the police, they're thinking to themselves, I'm gonna call 911 and nobody's gonna answer. And that's actually a Republican ad now. But think to yourself, what is it that police do? And what is it that they have to do? Just here, uh, a week and a half ago, a man by the name of Kizzy Johnson was shot and what did he do? He was shot by the sheriff's department, which is especially egregious. They've killed 11 people since the George Floyd murders this summer. Um, he was driving, he was riding his bicycle the wrong way down a street. And they told him to stop and he didn't stop. There is no, there is no reason, there's no way to get from that to shooting somebody. Now, so if you think of what, what police do, the functions that police do, traffic stops, there's no reason, no need to have a gun to tell somebody they went through a red light. Collision, you don't need a gun to come to a collision and find out if everybody's okay and, and who was in the wrong and who was in the right. Parking police, you don't need a gun to be able to figure out whether or not the parking meter went, you know, was, was over time. And then even in other situations, somebody's, you know, bar fight. Coming to a bar fight with a gun is just going to escalate the situation rather than training police in de-escalation tactics, which they are trained to a certain extent. But once they have, once you introduce a weapon into the situation, there's a good chance the weapon will get used. If you don't have a weapon, and there are police around the, around the world that do this, the British police come to mind first, but um, de-escalation. So you don't need a gun in a bar fight because the two people in a bar fight, by the time you got there, probably are calmed down. They had, you know, whatever, whatever stupid thing they were fighting about. Um, domestic violence, domestic abuse. Um, you have to respond to, people have to be uh, separated. You don't need a gun for that. And even if you need a gun, you don't need a gun first. You have a gun behind. You have, you know, somebody, an armed person who is close. Most of the things that police, mental, uh, you know, people having uh, mental challenges, uh, psychic breaks, Guns never help in that situation. Homeless folks, you have, here there's a, there was a famous case downtown, uh, was a, a man by the name of Charlie Africa was shot in his tent. Why did the police have, why did the man have a gun? If you have three people, you could have subdued him and you had taken him to where he needed. So what, um, what the, the ask is, what the demand is, is that, that most of that money, um, let's say there is a need in a certain hard, core of situations for an armed response. So that would be like 5% of what's going on. The rest of that money could be paid for non-uniform police officers to do all these other jobs of writing tickets and responding to domestic uh, abuse situations and responding to bar fights. Um, people are not necessarily uniformed or even if uniformed unarmed and the money can be reinvested in um, mental health clinics in neighborhoods which don't have them, 
in uh, education, uh, there's a, uh, there's, if your congregants want to, there's an amazing website called Million Dollar Hoods in Los Angeles, where uh, a wonderful researcher at, at UCLA has created, um, together with the Youth Justice Coalition and uh, information that they got from the LAPD after suing them with the ACLU, the amount of money that's spent in different neighborhoods around the city for incarceration. And then you could overlay on that the amount of money that is spent in different neighborhoods for education. And as you might imagine, it's an inverse proportion. So if you, if you switch that around, um, then you invest in education, you invest in, in drug rehabilitation, you invest in mental health clinics, you invest in employment, you invest in you know, loans for small businesses. You know, that is what we call alternatives to incarceration. People hear alternatives to incarceration or the abolitionist movement, what they think is, oh, just let people just open up the jails and all these people are gonna run wild on the streets because we've watched too many Mel Gibson. But actually what it means is that a lot of crime are social problems. There's a hardcore, you have you know, people who are you know, um, psychotic or people who are uh, you know, sociopaths who have to be uh, taken away from society. You have certain situations where um, you know, people are showing up in, in, in violent situations with combat weaponry, which goes back to our first problem, why, why do people own privately own AR-15? So you might need those. Now, the, the other thing that we need to do desperately is to have an ethics board in, ju just like at, at hospitals, there's an ethics board for triage, for deciding, you know, especially nowadays, speaking to friends of mine who work on it, I'm sure you, you, you know people also in, in Richmond, people in Boston. When, the, when coronavirus started, there was a serious issue, a serious fear, some places it, it actually came to fruition about, about lack of resources, lack of ventilators. Right? So how do you triage? Who gets the, and, and uh, you know, clergy and, and ethicists and doctors all sit together and make decisions on a, on, on a real, in a real-time basis. We need those kind of boards in the police. When there is a situation which might lead to violence, which might lead to shooting, there has, this board has to be contacted and they're the ones who will say, yes, you can shoot. Now, we think that that sounds ridiculous because we've grown up on all these police movies where Bruce Willis goes out and just shoots everybody. But if you think about every action movie, <laughs> this is my last pop culture reference, not really, but if you think about every action movie- For now. Ever, for now. For now. <laughs> if you think about every action movie you've ever seen, how do you know who the hero is? because he's the only guy alive after the first scene, right? The action hero never actually, he might save one person, but he causes thousands of other people to get killed. And even though that's hyperbole and an exaggeration of what really happens, but in truth, guns cause people to get killed, right? And so having, when you have to have, police, when you have the, the possibility that there will be, that the police will have to use violence, there has, they, have, they can't be on the ground, the ones who are making that final decision in the heat of the moment. They have to check in with some ethics board that will tell them, yes, you can make that decision in this moment, right? And, and even the army has as ethicists, they usually don't help, but the army has, but it's something that, but the, and that's another thing we have to get away from. And this started after 9-11 with the Patriot Act. Police forces should not be an army. You know, here there's a, a chant, which I'm sure you've heard on the streets, whose streets, our streets. 
And that's not just a chant. That's saying that the streets are public and the people who control what happens in those streets should be the public. In Los Angeles, at times, you have the police in the streets saying whose streets are streets. They should not be an occupying force. They should not be. They, they, the whole mentality of the police as an army is just wrong. The police should serve. They should follow up on, on law when you need it. But most of what the police do is completely, most of what armed officers do is completely irrelevant or un, uh, it's unnecessary to have police officers doing it. And so the, the the other thing that comes to mind, another pop culture kind of reference that comes to mind is when you know when you see uh, police movies, police TV shows. You know, not only are are the ones you know who are most often celebrated, you know, the heroes are the ones who most regularly use force, but but also the ones who um, refuse to play by the rules. You know, the ones who the, you know, thinking of like Jack Bauer, right? Is like, you know, I don't, I don't have time for your protocols and your committees. Like, I'm just going to torture this prisoner uh, and uh, and you know, get the information that I want, and then you know, and then defuse the bomb. Uh, and, uh, and and so we we do. I think we have a sense in our society that we we venerate you know people who um, not only use force but refuse to listen to the people who tell them don't use force right now because that's not the way we do things. Um, and, and so that's that's a, a major challenge to overcome. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, what you're describing reminds me of uh, the, in, in Jewish law, the notion that, uh, that in order for, you know, to authorize the use of military force um, uh, requires uh, the uh, approval of the Sanhedrin in, in rabbinic law. Um, and uh, in, uh, when, when the temple stood, uh, might have required uh, a con consultation with the uh, with with the priest and and the Urim and Tumim, the you know the the oracle. Um, is that sort of what you're talking about? Saying like you know to use force, um, you know we need to have a, a deeper and and broader authority, more wisdom than just the instinct of the individual officer on the scene. Yes, and, and actually in a contemporary situation, Chaim, Rabbi Chaim David Alevi was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv and wrote a kind of a response, wrote a response about uh, policing. Talks about shoftim um, shoftim that there are judges and officers who are, uh, who are uh, um, carrying out the laws, our shoter, the modern Hebrew word as you know for police. But he says that actually, in his understanding, the shotrim, the police, have to be learned in law, just like judges. There has to be a so he has this idea of having a local um, court to decide cases. Now, the problem is <coughs> the problem is often in trying to translate. Um, Chaim David Alevi had no didn't didn't really have a, a complete understanding of what happens in in contemporary policing. But the notion, but we, but to take seriously the notion that a police officer has to have training, or has to have access to that kind of wisdom, that ethical wisdom and legal wisdom on the spot, is actually very important because we don't want Jack Bauer. I don't want Jack Bauer in my neighborhood. <laughs> no, I don't want Bruce Willis in my neighborhood. And he actually doesn't live that far from here. But <laughs> I, I and and um, that notion that we have, you know, and I, and. You know, confession. I love action movies, um, but 
they're movies. They're not real life, right? And and in real life, we don't. In real life, um, uh, when you have a police force that is armed to the teeth, as our police force is, um, our police force. You know, they, we just found out a couple of years ago that the police force at UCLA had a tank. And just just let that sit for a minute. What do you? What is a police force on a university campus can get tanked for? So there is this, you know, building up this macho notion which is embedded in a certain narrative, which is really powerfully dangerous about what America was, about the American West, about rugged individualism, which sustained a narrative of genocide against Native Americans and enslavement of, of African-Americans and Africans and African-Americans because of the fact that what it denied and what it erased was the fact that the West actually was an affirmative action plan, was, in, was the government giving away land for free to people who had done nothing for it after the army had kicked off the, the, those people who lived in that land. So in order to create, in order to, so this, this narrative of the rugged West, the John Wayne narrative came to cover over a very bad, part of American history and in uncovering that history, um, which people are doing, um, historians are doing it, activists are doing it, allows us to then more honestly deal with our present, with what the, where police comes from. You know, you're in Richmond, but the Citadel, which is in, in, in uh, North Carolina, um, one of the Carolinas, um, was, was originally found as one of the oldest uh, military academies in the country and was founded uh, to put down slave rebellions. And so that kind of history that we need to, to uncover and recover and, and teach will allow us to get beyond the heroic action movie understandings of police and, and, and guns that we have. And, and we won't have things like Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17 year old kid who got his hands on an AR-15, went to a peaceful demonstration and shot two people. Right. You, so, you know, it reminds me that, um, you know, the, I was a teenager, I was in high school um, uh, when Columbine happened. Um, and, you know, it was, it was really, uh, you know, most of us, you know, at the time, I think didn't really have a, you know, such a context for that kind of mass murder. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, the first kind of, uh, as a teenager, the first uh, real accounting or grappling with, with what happened at Columbine that, that I saw that was, you know, in any way, you know, kind of uh, serious or thoughtful was uh, Michael Moore's movie, Bowling for Columbine. And it was the first time that I had ever seen the dots connected between, um, between gun violence uh, the proliferation of guns and the and you know the the uh, advocacy for the you know uh, for for a very broad interpretation of the Second Amendment uh, and uh, systemic racism, uh, which you know uh, the 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 and and now I can see it you know everywhere from what you just described, right, Kyle Rittenhouse. And you know, imagine that if a you know a seventeen-year-old uh, black man. Uh, black teenager was walking down the street with an assault rifle, you know, in the middle of a protest, would police officers have thrown him a bottle of water and said, we appreciate you being here, um, you know, to the, the, the you know, the couple 
that was uh, invited to speak at the Republican National Convention uh, who were venerated for uh, threatening uh, Black Lives Matter protesters um, with with their own with their own guns, um, you know, and if the roles were reversed, right? If it were a a, a black family telling you know uh, white protesters to get off their lawn, um, would they have been similarly celebrated? Right, uh, completely. And and you don't even have to we don't even have to imagine it. The uh, the most restrictive gun control laws that were in California were instituted after the Black Panthers started showing up on the streets with shotguns. Um, and then uh, shadowing police who were harassing uh, black residents in San Francisco. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, the, the, the California decided they needed strict gun control. Um, so I'm taking it that you don't uh, hold by the, um, the sentiment that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's just, that's one of the most ridiculous things. You know, one of the most ridiculous things that the NRA has ever come out come up with. The, you know, usually the good guy with a gun ends up shooting himself in the foot. Um, I say this as somebody who has, you know, I've shot all manner of weapons. I'm not, you know, I I'm, I, I served in the army. I, I, I you know, shot I've shot everything from a nine millimeter pistol to 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 a tank. Um, in the Israeli army, we should. In the Israeli uh, army, yeah. and and I, uh, uh, so I'm not, you know per se afraid of guns. Um, I see no reason for anybody to own a weapon privately. I see no reason. I mean, somebody, some people hunt, I'm you know, actually uh, ideologically opposed, you know, principally opposed to hunting also because I'm a vegetarian, but that's a whole other conversation. But all right, maybe we'll put an exception for hunting, but even hunting, you could rent a gun for a day to go hunting. It's like you could be you like shooting and people like shooting you go to a gun range you rent a gun like you go bowling you don't have to own your own bowling ball to go bowling right? you could rent your gun and 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 do target practice that's fine that's you know that's that's even a sport <laughs> um but that's 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 great um but there's absolutely no reason for the proliferation of that there's no there there are no statistics that show that more people more good people with guns stop bad people with guns than end up injuring themselves or or escalating situations to a place where where they would never have gone before. Um, the thing that stops the only thing that really stops gun violence is taking away the guns, like they did in Australia. Um, now we've managed to paint ourselves into a corner where we're fighting over lax regulations like background checks, which are really important, but that doesn't stop, doesn't take away the guns. You know, there's, a, as you know, there's a, um, a, a law in the halakha says you're not allowed to sell um, hunting implements to somebody who you think might be violent with them. How could we, most of the people, I mean, we, we, it's hard for me even to articulate this in a serious manner without just getting snarky. If you look at the people who are coming out to these protests, in their camo and in their, what are they doing, right? Who do they think they're occupying? They're, they're, the rhetoric of we need larger, we need more weaponry than an oppressive government means that they should be able to buy stealth fighters. And it's, ridic it's a ridiculous notion. They have some narrative in their head about being a lone wolf hero who's going to take down a government like Bruce Willis. But we're living in reality. We don't live in movies. And what's actually going to happen is they're going to shoot some innocent person. 
just like happened in in the uh, the Boogaloo people who shot uh, an armed security guard who had nothing to do with the protest, but they shot him because they wanted people to think that Black Lives Matter protests who shot him said it would start a race war. That's what these people do. They don't. They're not heroes who are going to bring down an oppressive government. They're they're hobbyists. Unfortunately, their hobby is collecting uh, uh, weapons of war. You know, we all thought that Parkland was the, the last straw. We all thought that Columbine, Columbine was the last straw. We all thought everything, was, but there's so many straws that we can no longer see the camel. You know, there's, and, and it's, it, it's come to a point where it, it's not clear what the argument is, what, what argument. So that, I mean, it's the, that's the Noah moment. When does the flood come? He's building the ark and building the ark and building the ark. He's bringing the animals in and bringing the animals in and bringing the animals in. It's starting to drizzle. It's starting to rain. People are still saying, "Nah, you know, it's just that I means rainy season." When do we when do we stop? We think, no, this is actually a flood, and we have to we have to change course. That's you know. You know the other thing that that uh, <laughs> uh, that this brings up for me from the parsha, especially this question of you know bad guys with guns and good guys with guns, is you know both something that you said and something that we haven't said yet. You know, one is that what you haven't said yet. I, I think is you know that um, uh, that you know it, it's 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 not always so clear um, what the definition of good guy is um, or or what the definition of, of bad guy is. Uh, so the the parsha uh, says you know famously after Noah gets off the ark, right? God says lo osif adam adam uh, I will uh, never again doom the earth because of man, since the devisings of man's mind are evil from his youth. Like there's a recognition that we, we you know, all have this, you know, ingrained uh, uh, natural inclination to do bad. Not necessarily that we, we uh, always, all of us always act on that inclination, uh, but we always have that inclination within us. Uh, and, and so something that you did say before you know, the, the analogy of, you know, to when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, um, that, uh, that, that it's, it's quite possible that the very possession of or the proliferation of these kinds of uh, weapons um, increase the likelihood that a person will act on that kind of violent uh, impulse that, that we all have. It's so true. And, and when you say that it's hard to tell the difference between the good guy and the bad guy, unfortunately, oftentimes those distinctions are racialized. So Philando Castile had a owned, had a license for a handgun, and because of that, he was shot. And the NRA didn't say anything about that. Um, his and not, his murder was was filmed by his girlfriend, who was coming apart while he was bleeding out. And uh, the policeman standing next to next to her didn't let didn't call for cops for a long time. Didn't let him move, and he had a licensed handgun. He wasn't doing anything. He just said, I have a licensed handgun. I'm going to reach for it now. He reached for it and, and the cop shot him. So uh, the case of the, the uh, African-American security guard who, who called the police when the police came, they shot him. So unfortunately, good guy and bad guy is often racialized. And when it's racialized, it has nothing to do with being good or bad. It just has to do with our history of racism. Right? And so what you're saying is, is, is completely right, that we have... We, once you put the weapons in the situation, you've gotten rid of the ability of having the rational conversation about what are you doing here? You know, and oftentimes, I mean, the question, you know, a lot of these, it goes on and on. A lot of these situations start with 
with you must not belong here because you're a different race because you're black, right? And then that escalates from there. Right now, people can be racist without guns and that's terrible, but nobody dies, right? When you're racist and you have a gun and you have standing ground laws, then people die. And beyond all the, and, and, and that's not even talking about the fact the six-year-old who finds their, you know, father's gun in the drawer and shoots himself with it, or the, you know, on and on and on about the danger of, because they're weapons. They're not, they're not toys, actually, at the end of the day. You know, I, um, I, I feel, I feel compelled to, you know, to mention that, you know, what, what we're, um, working on with with our partner congregations um, is you know what, what's called a gun violence prevention program it's it's kind of based on the on, on two recognitions one is that um, we we want to um, uh, build a coalition and 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 you know and, and build a movement um, uh, and you know one of the ways to do that is by focusing on uh, solutions that are not necessarily alienating or, or divisive to people that we might want to include in the movement, um, and so the, the the work that we're doing is not around uh, gun control, not around uh, you know uh, uh, gun um, uh, gun laws, um, but rather around uh, group intervention uh, and uh, and. Uh, um, and sort of like nonviolence education uh, within within communities, community building effectively, uh, and then and the second recognition which you mentioned before um, that you know uh, that that you know Richmond could if it wanted to adopt you know the most restrictive uh, gun laws in the country, uh, and it wouldn't matter because you could go to West Virginia and drive you know guns across the border or wherever it is, right? So you, what you were describing in Chicago and and Indiana. Um, and so, you know, it will, it, aside from action on a national level, and maybe something even as radical as, as you know, repealing or changing the Second Amendment, um, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's only a limited amount uh, certain localities can do when it comes to um, actually, you know, stemming the uh, access to, to weapons. Um, but uh, one of the recognitions that we had here is that um, a, a very uh, small, Segment of the population um, is, that that you know live in uh, you know uh, in, you know in, in the same neighborhoods as one another, know one another, have relationships with one another, um, are responsible for a, an extremely disproportionate uh, percentage of the uh, gun violence in in the city of of uh, of, of homicides and uh, and and other injuries and, and deaths. And so the program that we're advocating to be adopted um, is, you know, it goes back to what you were saying before that that this is, you know, a, a challenge of, of of building and sustaining community, of seeing our connections to one another, of, of community and resolving uh, uh, problems as a, a sense of community of, of obligation, a community of, of responsibility. I'm wondering, as a way of kind of maybe putting a a, a button on this, um, how do you see that as uh, coming out of the Noah story, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the classical definition of Hamas uh, that a lot of the commentators offer, which is, you know, that uh, that you know everybody kind of thinks on an individual level, you know, of uh, you know I'm gonna just like you know take this uh, one uh, this one small item that can't be prosecuted, uh, it's so it's so small, and in 
you know, in that individual instance, it may be insignificant, but in the aggregate, it means that nobody is following laws anymore and you have a complete breakdown of the social order. Um, is, uh, is, is that what's going on here and, and, and how do we address it? So, um, yeah, that's great. I, 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 so I'll tie the beginning of the parasha to the end of the parasha. Um, mm -hmm. And the end of the parasha is, of course, the Tower of Babel story. And so one of the understandings of Hamas is that it was theft. And there's ways in which theft on a grand scale undermines the ability uh, to have a community because one, if you don't if you don't respect boundaries between people, if you if you don't respect the fact that some things are mine and some things aren't mine, if you let greed um, uh, dictate your social relationships, there's no there's an inability to have community. And the, we know the Tower of Babel story. They built this tower up to heaven. It's not clear exactly what the sin was. Um, but the rabbis say in Midrash that one, one, one interpretation is that um, the bricks were more important to them than the people. Mm. So that they, they, what they, they didn't bother them that in building this building, people died. What bothered, what was most important was to, to um, Don't lose build a this building, right? And so when we lose, when we talk about it, sometimes I, like to use this invented term economism, which is not, which is like the ideology that the most important thing is the bottom line. And when that becomes, uh, when that overtakes, so then community doesn't make a difference. People's lives don't make a difference. And, and finally, I want to just want to, you know, I, I tie it in a bow with, we, we oftentimes talk about pikuach nefesh, which is, you know, uh, endangering life. And when life is in danger, there's lots of things, um, uh, we're allowed to do, you're allowed to break Shabbat, you're allowed to break a lot of other laws. But there's also a positive commandment of mm -hmm. you have to guard your lives. And we've, in this conversation has been around with, uh, been in the public in, in regards to coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Very important conversation, really great that it's having. But in terms of gun ownership, it's the same conversation. What level of risk are we willing to take? To have 300 million guns in private ownership, well, you know, what what level of risk are we willing to take? And I think that we're taking a much higher risk than we should be taking. I don't think we're taking a, a risk which shouldn't be allowable to allow people to 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 buy weapons which should only be deployed, if ever, in in military situations. Should only be deployed against armed targets. Should never be in 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 civilian um, civilian localities. <clears throat> so I think that that's you know I, and um, you know when God put up the 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 rainbow, um, right? Uh, so there's a a uh, promise that God made that uh, the earth would never be destroyed by flood again. Which was a very specific promise. God was God had God's lawyer in on that. It wasn't that the world would never be destroyed again, but it wouldn't be destroyed by flood. I think the rainbow is both a reminder of the covenant, but also a reminder that now it's on us. Mm. We could easily destroy the world in all kinds of ways. And one of them is just by, by violence, just by killing each other. I think that that's what the sign of the rainbow has to remind us of. Right. And, and all the more so, right, uh, you know, the, the Hebrew term for rainbow 
keshet is the same as the term for a bow, like a bow and arrow, right? And so I, I love that read, you know, a, a reminder that, you know, right, very specifically, I'm not going to destroy the world by a flood, but the world could be destroyed by, destroyed by bow, right? Or, you know, the, uh, the, the modern, uh, uh, the modern, the modern descendant of, of, the, of the bow and arrow, which is the, the firearm. Right, that's great. That seems very, very perfect. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cohen, Rabbi Cohen, for uh, being with us this Shabbat and sharing um, so deeply of your wisdom. Uh, it's, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you and to learn from you. Uh, and we're so grateful that you uh, joined us this Shabbat. Um, I want to encourage everybody once again, uh, check out Rabbi Cohen's book, Justice in the City. Uh, and uh, you can find uh, him on a blog of the same name. Uh, Justice in the City publishes widely, um, teaches uh, broadly, uh, and uh, anything that Rabbi Cohen uh, writes or teaches, um, we should make it a point to learn from. So thank you once again, Rabbi Cohen. Thank you so much. It's been shalom. a pleasure. Shabbat Shalom. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.